new, you're welcome to go with your kiddo and get them checked in and then come back and join us. The owners of the Pax and Beneficia coffee shop in Irving, Texas, want to do something about the cultural differences that are tearing us apart. They had a conversation between themselves, the owners, and they decided that the way we approach each other is demonizing and dehumanizing. So they wanted to offer a small solution to help with that. And the creative idea that they came up with for civility was to offer a free coffee to any two people that came in. If you brought a friend in, in order to discuss a differing opinion, and somebody who didn't agree with you, somebody who didn't think like you, somebody who didn't have your worldview, politically, religiously, if you brought them in, then you could buy one coffee and get one free and sit in their cafe to have the conversation and begin to put aside some differences and come to understanding. Here's what they said in the Dallas Morning News. The idea came out that we could create this mechanism where people can invite someone with an opposing viewpoint and feel comfortable to sit in our cafe and have those really difficult conversations with the intent of connecting and understanding one another. To incentivize people to have these conversations, let's give them something so they feel comfortable and safe. Let's give them a buy one, get one free. Their desire has always been that their coffee shop would be a place where people could gather and talk. The name in Latin means loosely peace and blessings. And so they wanted to offer this, this creative idea to produce some civility in our culture and allow people that are on opposite ends of the spectrum come together with some understanding. I find that uh, a fascinating idea. And I see in 1 Peter 3, our passage today, the same thing going on. Peter gives us instruction for civility in cultural engagement. He's going to talk about what we say and how we say it. 1 Peter chapter 3, and so I invite you to turn with me there, if you will. We'll look at God's Word. 1 Peter is toward the end of your Bible, right there before the big book of Revelation. And if you lived in Irving, Texas, and you were to go to the coffee shop, to Pax and Beneficia, and take an unbeliever to share the gospel of Jesus Christ what would you say? And just as importantly, how would you say it? Well, Peter's going to give us some help here. He's going to inform us through the power of God's word, equip us, instruct us, teach us, train us in righteousness here so that we can engage our culture with great civility. We obey Jesus in this world. We know that we're called to be witnesses, to make disciples who make disciples. But we don't always do it with great tenderness and kindness and understanding in a world that's very angry 
and often opposed to us. I think the truths in 1 Peter 3 apply to all kinds of conversations we can have with believers and unbelievers alike, political, religious, any kind of conversation. But I think they're especially important when we think about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we think about giving the truth of who he is and the grace of the gospel. So let's look at that, uh, being civil as we engage the culture. The first thing we'll see in verses 13 to the first part of 15 in chapter 3, the first Peter, that we are to be civil when we are facing opposition. Be civil when we are facing opposition. You know, the, the first century Christians faced a, a great deal of persecution. They went where they went with opposition everywhere they went. They faced a great deal of persecution. They faced opposition. Many of them lost jobs. They lost memberships in different groups. They had no political power, and they had very little cultural engagement because people looked at them as having nothing to offer and really wanted nothing to do with them. And so they were in a much different place, a much worse place than we are today. But they were followers of Jesus, and that was important to them. And we read in the book of Acts that they turned the world upside down. They turned the world upside down without winning arguments, without political power, without cultural leverage. And so as we look at the content and the tone of our lives, we want to be the same kind of people. That, that turn the world upside down just by going through it, going where we go with Jesus Christ in a way that our lives are transformed and we make an impact with our lips and our lives. In chapter 3, 13, we get a picture of the world as it should be. This is what Peter writes, the picture of where civility is rewarded, if you will. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what is good? Right? You do good, should be rewarded for it, should not be harmed. But we live in an upside down world. We live in a world where truth is done away with, it's canceled, and chaos reigns in a lot of different ways. Judeo-Christian values are disregarded and even opposed when they do surface. And so we live in a world where we are not rewarded for good behavior or kind acts all the time. And so Peter picks up on that. He says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. First half of 14. Suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Peter is essentially saying, don't be surprised. He's talking to Christians that are spread throughout the empire that are facing heavy persecution, but he's talking to us today because as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we face a, a spiritual enemy. We engage in spiritual warfare, and we've got to do that with spiritual resources. So we should not be surprised. We should anticipate that we will suffer for doing right. We should anticipate rejection, and we must be civil. 
when we face opposition. I think Peter was a, a good student of uh, Jesus Christ in this school of discipleship that Christ brought him through. Uh, I want to look quickly at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, as we consider what Christ uh, tells us, as he told the disciples then, and um, what we see is that uh, there will be persecution. But there is a reward for that. In verse 10, we read this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. He's not saying just suffer under. He's not saying endure. He's not saying try to get through it any way you can. He's saying rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in this same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And by the end of this passage, we'll see that they persecuted Jesus the same way. The one who is just, who died for the unjust. Jesus reinforced the thought that persecution comes even when we are eager to do good and to do what is right. Peter was listening in that aspect of discipleship. That if we're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be pushback that we're going to have a cross to bear as we submit to him in a culture that does not. Jesus taught them, well, the world hated me, Jesus said, and it will hate you as well. But we are to fear God. We're not to fear men. The next part of verse 14 gets our attention in that regard. He quotes Isaiah and he says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. There is no cause for fear when we engage with the culture around us. And that's something we all deal with at different times and in different ways. Because we dread the influences of this world on our families. We tremble at the idea of dealing with evil in the world. And we are fearful that these Judeo-Christian values will just disappear and we will be swallowed up with them by the culture around us. And so fear is rampant. Of course, fear is rampant in the unknown. What will happen? What won't happen? Fear is rampant in not knowing the future. But fearful responses never help us engage the world and they certainly don't help us in being civil as we engage the world. There's no sense of kindness and gentleness and tenderness as we come to people when we are fearful. They cause us, fearful responses cause us to seek power. They cause us to go on the attack. And, and here's the deal with a fearful response when we seek out ways to get back at people, to lash out, to intellectualize them, to overpower them with arguments, then we are essentially saying that we will fight this kingdom with the world's values, and we will fight a spiritual warfare with the enemy's strategy. But we're in spiritual warfare, which means that we need spiritual resources from Jesus Christ. We don't want to just pick up the strategy of the world and attack we want to be those who find our strength in Christ and our courage 
and are willing to go out and love the world to engage them. We don't want to respond fearfully and try to fight on equal terms with the world around us because they just lead to actions and attitudes and words that are not civil. Peter gives us the means to maintain our civility here. He tells us how to deal with our fear here in verse 15, the very first part of it. He said, don't be fearful. And then he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He goes on with the content and then the tone. But we're going to just going to focus on that as we talk about being civil when we face opposition. And especially when we think about uh, facing opposition in this world that leaves us fearful. We've got to remember that our hope and our identity is in Jesus Christ. And we talk about that a lot. We talk about it in all kinds of different contexts. But it's especially important if we're going to engage a world, a culture around us that's just angry and violent, that is difficult to get along with, even difficult to talk with, We've got to be rooted in our identity in Christ. And so Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The word sanctify literally means to set apart Jesus Christ. Worship him. Treasure him. Remember who you are in Christ. I love to think through some of the biblical truths from Ephesians chapter 1. When I think about my identity because it brings tremendous security. And that's what we're looking for in a world of fear, in a world that wants us to be weak and wants us to lash out in response. We're looking for a security that allows us to be calm and loving and bold. In Ephesians 1, we see that we were chosen by the Father, that we were adopted into the family of God, that we were redeemed by the Son, forgiven by his blood, his shed blood. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, if that's all we knew about our spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, we would be able to approach the world with greater love because we're rooted firmly in Jesus Christ. Our hope and our identity is in him. And when you consider it, fully and completely, you realize that we are loved unconditionally by him. And loved people are free to love people. When we are not recognizing the love that we possess in Jesus Christ and the strength and the security through our identity in Christ, then we do begin to reflect the values and strategies of the world around us. And we begin to lash out. Peter calls us, to be secure in our identity in Christ, to be armed with the spiritual resources that will allow us to engage the world with civility. And he warns us that facing opposition is inevitable. He challenges us to be civil anyway. And then the next thing he does is to challenge us to make sure we know the gospel to share. And it's a very familiar verse, chapter 15, verse 15 of chapter 3, it's one that I'm sure many of us have memorized over the years. It's one of those noble verses that remind us of our mission 
in Christ. And certainly the content is right there. And what we have to remember is we must be civil when we are announcing the good news. We're commissioned to be witnesses in the world, so we've got to know the content of our witness, right? We've got a message of hope, and that's Peter's dominant word for our faith and for the gospel throughout his letter here to those who are persecuted in the, in the empire is that we have hope. We possess hope in Jesus Christ. And so he challenges us to be ready to explain that hope. This is what he says in verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. Being able to give an account, to give a defense, it literally means just an explanation of the hope that you possess. And so we want to know that gospel. And most of us have memorized some type of gospel presentation where we use scripture to, to point out that people are sinful and separated from God, but God has demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that by grace, we can come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, not of any kind of works. It can't be earned. And so we have all different ways that we can present the gospel Sometimes with one verse, John 3, 16, Romans 6, 23. Sometimes with a, a trail of verses, like the Roman road in, in the book of Romans. Whatever it is, we know how to present the gospel. If nothing else, we can tell people how we came to Christ and placed our faith in him. And, and that is the content that we must know. We must be ready and prepared at any time to give an explanation, to give an account to make a defense to anyone who asks us for this hope that we possess. And when we do that, when we think about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are confronted with the tension of the gospel. Especially when we're trying to be civil and engage a world that is opposed to us, that has a different viewpoint on salvation or even the need for it. There's this tension we have to deal with simultaneously. On the one hand, we've got to challenge them with their sin and their separation from God and their failure to live according to his holiness and his perfection. And on the other hand, we want to invite them into a life that flourishes in Jesus Christ through faith in him. And so there is a confrontation that comes about. We have to be aware of that tension and we have to invite them into this hope to a new kind of life through faith in Jesus. How can we do that well? Well, if we're lashing out at them in verses 13 and 14, as we saw, if that's our tendency to respond to the culture as the culture does, then we've likely already lost them. We can easily get caught up in pointing out what is wrong with the world and with people and the culture in our conversations with others. But the reality is that they are just acting as those who live without God. They don't have the Holy Spirit inside them, empowering them to walk in righteousness. The power of sin has not been broken in their lives through faith in Jesus Christ. When we go that direction, our, angry, our anger can quickly rise to levels that turn them away from Jesus Christ. 
We want to see people rescued from the enemy and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, they must know that everyone is sinful and separated from God. But we can do that by sharing our own testimony. We can do that by pointing to the truth of Scripture and letting, letting God, the Holy Spirit, work on their hearts. We can do that explaining the need for salvation because of sin in sober ways, without accusation. Our motivation, and this is what changes the tone of the conversation, is that we must be loving toward them. We must have a love for them. They are not the enemy. They are hostages of the enemy that need rescue. They are not the ones we are to lash out at. They are the ones that we are to love. So we can bring the message of the gospel in a civil way with love. We can invite them to life in Christ. We can let kindness lead them to repentance. We can point them to Jesus in kind and civil ways. Our defense, our explanation does not have to be heavy-handed. Uh, a biblical perspective remembers that God is the one who changes hearts. God is the one who convicts them of their need as a sinner. God is the one who draws them to himself. We are simply called to be faithful, to present the gospel with grace and with truth. We must be clear on the content. The next Peter challenges us to do that with the right tone. In the remaining verses, we see that we are to be civil when being attacked. You see, when we, when we are attacked by the culture, too often we concentrate on knowing the gospel in verse 15, and then we kind of stop right there. Be ready to give it a defense, an account for the hope that you have within you. And we forget that final phrase in the verse. We, we leave out a major part of God's intent for us to deliver the gospel. And this is what it says. I'm going to read all of verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So remember your security in Christ. Act out of love for others. Explain the gospel to them and do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect set the tone for civility in our conversations. That's what the owners of Pax and Beneficia are trying to encourage as they offer a free copy, coffee to any two people that come in and want to discuss differing viewpoints. We don't want to miss the manner of how we deliver the gospel. Gentleness forces us to slow down and listen. Gentleness reminds us that we are not on a battlefield trying to take casualties. We're not in a classroom trying to win an argument, an academic argument. We are here to look at these people as image bearers of God and love them and bring the gospel to them. Gentleness slows us down. It's James, who said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James 1, 19 and 20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. What a great passage to, to meditate on in these days in which we want to lash out. And, and believe me, you know, I talk about this the last three weeks at least with you guys, and, and uh, I am not faring well all the time. 
you know what? I do really, really well in public right now. But when I'm around people that I just assume are like-minded, I can just call people names. I, I can come up with all kinds of things with my own critical spirit, and I am not handling the culture well. I, I want you to know that, that I am not up here preaching perfection to you and pretending that I'm Teflon, I got no problems, nothing sticks to me. That's not real. And, and I know it's not real for you guys as well. But we're in this together. And so we want to be people who are slow to speak. We want to be people who are gentle, that we are quick to hear, and that we don't turn to anger as our first response or our second response or our third response, especially with people that disagree with us, whether they're in front of us or on the monitor or on the social media. One method that you and I can use when we are face-to-face, -face, when we are in conversation, is reflective listening. This is a method that you and I can use that is great at bringing understanding. It is a great communication feature where I listen to you and then I try to repeat back to you what you have said so that you can tell whether I have begun to understand you or not. Obviously, the goal of all communication is to understand each other. And we make a lot of assumptions that way. But reflective listening gives us that opportunity. And you can see how that could help us in an angry culture. Just to respect someone enough, to be gentle enough with someone, to listen to them and then repeat back what they are saying to so, show that we are attempting to understand them. That's a form of gentleness. Respect means that we esteem them, we value them. And so we find ways to show that to them. I'm fascinated by a, a story that was in the Wall Street Journal two or three weeks ago uh, about the Mitchells and the Gates, two families outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, neighbors live next door to each other. Maybe you saw this as well. The Mitchells, I guess I, I should get this right. The Mitchell family are lifelong Democrats, and they posted a Biden sign in their yard. The Gates are lifelong Republicans, and they display a Trump sign in their yard. Right next to those signs, they have a second sign that says, we heart them. We love them with an arrow pointing to their neighbor. And so obviously this catches everyone's attention. A reporter chased it down and, and they said, you know, we love each other. We don't look at them as the enemy. We don't look at them as Democrats or Republicans. We look at them as our neighbors. These neighbors have three children roughly the same age. So they, they're obviously together a lot. Their boys all play on the same hockey teams. They have dinner together every Monday night. Now, that's an example of civility through respect. They respect each other. They have widely different opinions on political views and social policies. But they are willing to show respect and esteem the other. Now, I don't want to turn this into a political thing, but maybe it, 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 it all got our adrenaline going. These families are representative of people who are civil with one another. 
our goal is to show respect in spiritual conversations and political conversations and social conversations. We can disagree with people, but we can do it gently. We don't have to be threatened. We can be gentle and respectful, knowing that God stands with us, that our identity is secure in Christ, that we are free to love others. Our tone is extremely important. It conveys our love for them. Well, Peter continues to point out the correct mindset when we're attacked, and, and this is what he says in verse 16, and keep up a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He's not saying it's conditional, it may or may not happen. He's just saying you're going to be slandered. It just happens. When you stand for Jesus Christ in a culture that doesn't, you will be slandered. You will be maliciously attacked. Your character, your ideas, your thought patterns, your worldview, whatever it is, every good deed will be punished. So how can we handle that internally and externally? We don't want to give them ammunition. We want to rely on our spiritual resources. And so we need to walk in the spirit. We need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We need to exhibit the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. When we exhibit the fruit of the spirit, then we are walking in gentleness and reverence with Christ. And we are exuding that to the world around us. That helps us deal with a world that will slander us, that will maliciously attack us. We can rely on our spiritual resources. They can see our good behavior, which Peter points out under the instruction of the Holy Spirit will put them to shame they will recognize our good behavior, that we aren't responding in kind, and they don't have a metric for that. They don't know how to deal with that. They don't know where that comes from, and it elevates the power of our witness. Peter continues the theme of suffering under the persecution of our faith in verse 17. He says this, For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. There are times when God wills our suffering for his glory, that we might respond with good behavior, that we might respond with love and gentleness and respect, and that he could be glorified in that. We are not to respond to the world in kind with unjust responses, with unjust, uh, yeah, responses that, that try to deal with justice in our own way. In verse 19 of chapter 4, just across the page there. It's not on the screen. Peter says this, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So we can understand that God does mean for us to suffer for righteousness sake according to his will. But he will not forget us. We can stand in his strength and in his power. We can love those even when we're rejected by them. And the reason for this approach is given by the example of Jesus Christ. He suffered and served in order to draw the unjust to God, including us. This is how Peter finishes this passage in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust 
so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter personalizes it with the example of Jesus Christ by reminding us of how we came to God. He's saying, I want you to deal with people, all the injustice, just the way God dealt with us. Jesus endured all of that injustice, that he might bring you to God, that he might bring us to God. He is the example. And in his power, we can do that. We suffer because we mirror what he suffered. And as we engage others and we mirror Jesus, we need to recall there was a time when we had our backs turned to God. And he drew us in graciously. That is the tone that we are to have. That is the courage that we are to show. We operate in love when we are secure in Christ and when we are willing to reach out in gentleness and respect, stand secure in who we are because the Father will reward us and be able to exemplify Christ manifest in this world through us. Let's choose civility. When facing opposition, when announcing the good news, and when being attacked. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this challenge from your word. We thank you for laying things out for us in a, in a life that can be in such disarray and such confusion and frankly such anger at times that uh, just fuels uh, our critical spirit and our, our look at the world and, and it uh, makes us feel arrogant in our righteousness and we confess that. And we pray that you would give us a deeper love for people, for the world around us, to give us a willingness to engage them. We thank you that you free us up.